0: welcome to the medicine path podcast I'm your host Brian James on this episode I speak with Jill purse since the 1970s Jill has been exploring the use of overtone singing as a healing modality and she's a true pioneer in the field of sound healing regular listeners will know that sound healing is a real passion of mine and so it was a great honor and pleasure to meet Jill and learn more about her journey and her particular approach to healing with the voice. Since the very first episode of this podcast, I've been seeking out elders to speak with and learn from. And I realize that I very much feel in my middle age that I'm an elder in training. And I'm really grateful for the opportunity to speak with seasoned practitioners and teachers like Jill. Back on episode 14 of season one, I interviewed Stephen Jenkinson, and our conversation revolves around this question of what makes an elder. Since then, I've started to identify certain qualities that the people I consider elders embody. Of course, wisdom is a big part of it, and this is wisdom that can only be learned through a lifetime of direct experience. It's not something that can be learned through books or by listening to other teachers. The other qualities I've identified are humility, generosity, and a healthy sense of humor. The people I think of as the elders never seem to take themselves too seriously, and they aren't afraid to tell you when they don't know something, particularly something as mysterious as the nature of consciousness or how healing happens. Jill Peirce definitely has all of these qualities in spades, and I hope that you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Before we get to that, I just want to make a brief request to you, the listener, If you value these conversations, please take just a few moments to go and review this podcast on iTunes. It's an easy way to show your support and to give something back. If you'd like to support in other ways, you can go to medicinepathpodcast.com and click the support button. Now, please sit back and enjoy this conversation with Jill Peirce on the Medicine Path. Hi, Jill. Thanks for taking the time to speak with me.
1: You're welcome. Nice to meet you, Ron.
0: Nice to meet you, too. I'm really excited about this conversation. So just to begin, I was wondering when you became interested in the healing potential of The Voice. You've been doing this a long time, um, but do you remember those first moments where you started to tune into The Voice as a source of healing?
1: Yes, I think I was about seven or eight um I was um in ireland my my we we used to spend the summers in Ireland, and my father was extremely eccentric and uh, um one one night he decided that we meaning me, my brother, and I my mother, and him, should go on a, a to visit a, an island off the west coast of ireland and um so we got in a boat, and the only other people on the boat were the three women going home because it was night you know and uh so we set off and then a storm blew up, a really violent storm, and we were terrified. We thought we were going to drown. It was obvious we were going to drown. And then suddenly these three women in, in the back of the boat dressed in black, like three crones in a row, started a kind of wailing chant. Mm. And this terror, this, this complete, I mean, really, I was so uh, petrified. Turned into a kind of ecstasy and into a kind of blissfulness, and um, not only had all my fear evaporated, but the, the the wind subsided and the storm abated, and and the car the sea became calm and we we arrived. It was extraordinary. So these were the, this was the seed of my realization of the power of the human voice to not only tr- change the human emotions but also the elements themselves so as a as a means of transformation it it was sort of rooted in me from that really early experience
0: Mm. and after that did you start to sing more did you start to investigate uh healing forms of singing using the voice chanting like when did that start to happen like your practice and exploration
1: well, that was much later. So then I, that, that experience, I was about seven or eight. I can't remember exactly. And um, so, um, and well, my my mother was a concert pianist. So I was, I brought, I was brought up in a house with three concert grands and, um, you know, huge voluminous velvet dresses and, and things like that. And um, But I always kind of ran from that, really, because I, I didn't terribly get on with my mother. And, and so I, I, I didn't really want to be part of it. And although interestingly, I my godfather had a piano factory, and and so when I was really little, my mother would hole up with my my godfather in his office, and she'd take me along to this piano factory. And so while she was chatting to him, I'd be wandering around these disembodied actions and pianos, and full of very exotic, because they were they were all sort of European. And those days, England was full of English people, but these were these were these were exotic and European. They were Polish and. And, and they were sort of French polishing and tuning all these pianos out of tune. So I had this again very weird, mysterious induction into the out of tuneness of Western music. All of these, I think, played out in in my my later uh, um, kind of sense that I had to retune our music. So I, I started, I think, really getting, I, I became very interested in the, in the effect of sound on matter that started in the early 60s. And I was interested in how form comes into being. This is why I started working with the spiral as a kind of record of movement in time. And, um, and then in parallel with that, I saw the work of Hans Jenny, who, who, who was a student of uh, Rudolf Steiner, who was doing the work with Faraday waves or chimeratic patterns, showing what happens when you introduce sound into formless, seamless uh, um, heaps of, of matter or films of liquid of different viscosities, and how just through the introduction of sound you got extraordinary patterns? So, so this made me realize that sound was a kind of creative force in itself and um and then i think the thing that and then i started i was very early do, uh, practice, doing spiritual practices and the ones which intrigued me most were, were 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 sonorous were chanting ones so i was very early introduced to kind of sufi zikras um and then um i i met my tibetan lama in in early 70s um and started doing very regular chanting pujas and realized the extraordinary power of that. So I think, I think those those were the kind of seminal um, things that made me realize just how extraordinary, transformative and powerful, not just sound in general, but the human voice. And then in 71 um, uh, to 74, I was living in Germany with karl Heinrich Stockhausen, who was a very, very important Uh, composer in the Western art music scene, he created electronic music out of nothing using sine waves and and gradually adding in all the parameters of sound. And um, when I went to live and work with him in 71, the very first thing we did was we went on tour throughout Eastern North America with a piece called Stimmung, which he wrote in 1968 for uh, for vocal, for, for a very simple form of vocal harmonics with six singers sitting around singing on a B-flat um, doing, doing that. And so I had, so my induction into vocal sound and in particular harmonics was really on the one hand through Tibetan lamas and uh, practice, spiritual practice, and the other hand through the Western art musical tradition through Stockhausen. So on the one hand, these very archaic practices where the origins really are unknown. Nobody really knows how or why, for example, the Tibetans use overtones, um, um, or the Mongolians, um, and and Stockhausen, who actually sort of recreated music out of nothing. So on the one hand, I had this induction to the Western art musical uh, tradition, who had a completely um, uh, uh, total understanding of acoustics, and the Tibetan tradition, uh, which was a pragmatic tradition based on the effect of sound on the on the human psyche, um, but really had no understanding of acoustics, and and so it really these two things came in, and uh, so that's really what. Uh, began as a kind of very early, I, I pioneered the whole of this work really. There was nothing, there were no workshops or voice workshops in those days. So mm. I, I realized that we'd gone silent. You know, the more sophisticated we appeared to be in the West, the more silent we became. All the traditions of singing and chanting together had been eroded by the professionals who would hijack sacred music. And you had to join a choir, you had, I mean, to join a choir, you had to have an audition, you had to be able to read music, all these. All these things, and then, you know, you, uh, and the interesting word, you executed the music of somebody mm-hmm. else. Mm. Yeah, so I, I had this realization that I had to kind of reintroduce people to their voices, whether or not they said they could sing or been told they couldn't sing or whether they were professional musicians or not, or the whole gamut, really.
0: Yeah. And, and so when you're looking at the effects of sound on material, so I can imagine, I think I've seen some of those experiments where there might be a, um, a plate full of sand with a speaker underneath it. And when someone sings through the microphone and it's amplified by the speaker, it creates form uh, patterns in the sand or the oil or whatever the medium is. And so you started to understand through the Tibetan chanting Experientially, that chanting and singing was having an effect. So, where does your understanding come together in this um, experiential understanding where, okay, I might sing or chant and it helps me feel good, uh, create some clarity, uh, and this material understanding of how sound affects form?
1: Well I, I started as an artist and so I was very interested in the patterns, you know. The the, the patterns incidentally are formed where um where the, the the sand in the in the case of the use of sand or fine powder or actually traditionally lycopodium powder the the powder the spore of the club moss is a particularly good one um, it comes to rest um, where the vibration is not happening so it's a record of what's not happening uh, not what is happening interestingly mm. so so that was just a sort of um, a visual and a theoretical understanding of the effect of sound I realised you know that um, you could see what was happening, um, and but for me, always the experiential is the most important, uh, ultimately, because I I've always felt that we, we have to change, but but it's but at the same time, I like to know and see, you know, why these things are uh, are powerfully um, functioning. So so they never really were separate.
0: Mm. That seems to be a particularly. Uh, Western thing to want to see the effect, to want to know it intellectually or theoretically. Um, yeah. Why do you why do you think that is? Why do you think we have this desire to to understand like what is actually happening instead of just trusting the experience?
1: Well, I I think it's um, the Tibetans talk about um, the, you know, the three poisons, which is I, I see you as separate from me, and which means I want you but can't have enough of you or I don't want you even though I'm lumbered with you um, which means I, I want to take more I'm attached and, and at the same time I don't want all based on the delusion of separation so so we function in a world where we see through the eyes the world is separate from us it's very much to do with the dominance of vision because because hearing connects the, the, whereas the eyes separate so if I look at something then I see it as separate from me and therefore you know, I can do what I like with it. So the human condition is such that it sees the world as separate and feels it can control, pollute, um, pillage, rape, take, you know, that is there for them. It's separate and therefore it's there for their usage. Whereas in the kind of animistic or the shamanic traditions or the more spiritual traditions, there isn't that separation, everything has agency. And so it's not there just for our use um, because we're all part of something much greater than ourselves and so if we're part of something it's a kind of dance that we do together i Dow, and so on so i think that this um this need to to prove and 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 i'm married to scientists and i have a scientist son so i mean i'm very aware um you know this need to prove is very much i think comes about through this separation through the eyes um Uh, which which then gave rise to language and speech and and, and basically literacy. So I think literacy has a lot to answer for because we threw up without, you know, the eyes lead to literacy. And once once we have this means of of, um, writing things down, then I think that that leads to this need to control the world. So, as human beings, we're living beings, and we need to remain living. That's the, that's number one on the agenda. So, traditionally, we remain living by chanting, by praising God. You know, you praise God, then you ask for favours. You know, please bring the reins. But you praise first. You know, so good manners. But hmm. um, as soon as you. Uh, read and, and, and separate you and try and control the world through through measuring. You know, if I measure something today and it's the same as yesterday, then I predict it will be the same tomorrow and I can remain alive. So <clears throat> this has to do with this fanatical counting that we started to do in the 17th century and measuring. <clears throat> so it's all part of, our, of of our attempt to control the world and has led to us never being so out of control as we are now.
0: Hmm. It seems to me that this need for naming, knowing, categorization, um, locking into patterns—it seems to me like a, a way for us to feel secure in a very uncertain existence. You know, where we are quite vulnerable and small when it comes down to it.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, if you have a name for something, then then you have control over it. You think you do. <laughs> you think you do. Yeah, but then again, it's all part of that separation. If I, if, you know, if I see something as separate from me, and then I give it a name, then but then I have the burden of all the regrets of the things I forgot to do about it in the past, and therefore, the dreads of all the things I have to do about it in the future. So I've created time, which is a delusion. So, and then of course it feeds back, and I feel anxious because I didn't do it yesterday, and I have to do it tomorrow. And so we're not we're separate from the present, and isolated, and afraid.
0: Now so um I'm just wondering there there are some theories that uh because we are something like 75% water that when we sing and chant we're having the same kind of effect on our our physical body as the voice or sound does on something like the powders that you're talking about that somehow through sound we can restructure ourselves cellularly. Is that something that you believe in?
1: Definitely. I mean, I, 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 there's no question that when you make sound, the whole system changes. There's no question about that. Um, it's, it's very hard to do experiments on to see exactly what's going on because we're very complex beings, you know, but we have multiple resonances and there's no question that we entrain with the resonances around us. And you know, because we have the resonances of our movement—you know, one foot in front of the other—this oscillatory fundamental resonance, which allows us to go from here to there. Then we have the sort of heartbeat, and 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 the, and then we have the rhythms of the brain, all the brain rhythms, and then we have um, the proteins oscillate. I mean, everything in us is rhythmic and oscillatory and resonant, as is everything in the world around us, and and so. If we aren't making sustained sound, then our system isn't resonating, and therefore we're isolated and separate from the world around us. So as soon as we start to activate those different resonances, we can then become in tune with with the outside world, with internally coherent and coherent with each other. And, Mm. and Only then can we be sound in mind and body.
0: Yeah, and just to maybe help listeners understand this, Um, so this isn't something that is too far out when we're together in person we will uh, train to one another and train to one another Um, and that might be through our breath rate if you hang around with someone long enough you'll start to fall into their breath rhythm or they into your breath rhythm or find a common breath rhythm and this also happens um on a on a f- mental level as well, where uh, there are mirror neurons in the brain. So if someone is sitting with their arms crossed, you might find yourself just unconsciously crossing your arms or crossing your legs in the same way, um, smiling at each other. So this is something that's like very real and has been observed on many different levels. I have,
1: um, I have a very interesting example of this. Please. When- when, when Rupert and I got married in 1985, a long time ago, um, the photographer was a friend of mine. He didn't know Rupert and he wasn't a wedding photographer. He was actually a Tibetan Buddhist and, and uh, you know, uh, anyway... So he he didn't do any of the sort of classic shots of us standing there with all the kind of attendants and all that, and he didn't really take pictures of Rupert. He just took pictures of me. So the the bride is special at a wedding. You know, everybody wants to kiss the bride because they've got a kind of magic. So I, I and we got married in the church, and so outside the church, I was standing, and 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 then everybody who came to the wedding, it was from the whole sort of, you know, societal, all my, you know, childhood friends, people who I'd known at university, at school, all these people throughout my entire life were there. And so one by one, I, I greeted them. And he, and he took pictures of me greeting all these people one by one. And then when it came to sticking them in the album, I had this completely astonishing experience. Um, I went into this whole kinesthetic Um, kind of resonance with myself and the other person in the photograph. And I realized that when I greeted each of these people, if their smile went up, so did mine. If their smile went down, so did mine. If their eyes closed, so did mine. So I realized that Mm. there was this kind of complete mutual resonance between us when every time I met somebody, because every time I looked at these pictures, my face made a different, went into a different resonance. And then finally, there was one picture of Rupert with this very amazing man called Sir George Trevelyan, who was a sort of famous person in those days, who used to declaim things and was very astonishing. And, and there was one picture of Rupert with him, and they looked identical. I mean, it was really extraordinary. So that's why we look like our cats and dogs.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's kind of people tell me I look like my dog all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so then it just, it just makes sense that if we're singing or toning together, that we're going to come into a resonance. And so what's actually, you,
1: don't, you don't even need to sing and tone together, but as you were saying, you're just standing next to them. If you're in an agitated state and you stand next to somebody who's just come out of a three-year retreat, your whole vibratory body goes, and there's a kind of induction of order. Because when you meditate or in your um, in any kind of a meditative state, your your whole system is ordered, and so the chaos and the madness of normal emotional disturbances will all resonate with the person that you're standing next to, and because we do in train as resonant systems, and so by using the voice, we're just making that even more intentional, if you like, more conscious.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's actually a way to practice that. Yeah. And that's yeah. for me,
1: the, 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 you know, the important thing is sonorous communities. I mean, one of the reasons why I do what I do is because I love the fact that when, you, when, when groups chant together, the, all the boundaries between them dissolve and, and, the, and we, we have a community. And so all the people who work with me, I mean, there's a real community of people um, who've, who've, you know, done this together for a long time.
0: Mm. I love that. That's something that I'm really trying to create more of these opportunities for us to sing and chant together, because it just feels so good. Without understanding anything on a theoretical level or a molecular level, it just feels good. And I I just trust that. (laughs) Absolutely. So when you get together with groups, what are you doing? What does that sound like?
1: Well, I do all kinds of different things. Actually, um, I, I do. So, I started doing what I call the healing voice workshops, where we come together. And um, first of all, I teach all kinds of different breathing and sonorous yogas. And um, but when I was looking originally, when I first started doing this in in, in the kind of early seventies, I was I was looking. I wanted to start re-enchanting us. I mean I felt we were disenchanted and the remedy for being disenchanted is to chant, obviously. To be made magical through ch- through, through chanting is what to be re-enchanted means, to be enchanted. And, and there was no question that we felt and still feel disenchanted. Mm. So um, I was looking for a way of um, working with people which wasn't an arbitrary system, which was a kind of learned uh, um, societal um, cultural affair like scales, scales are cultural. You know, so you have the Balinese scale, you have, you have the pentatonic scale, these are all scale, ways of dividing the octave that have been, uh, that have accrued culturally. Um, but I wanted something which went way beyond that that was you know, to do with the fundamental nature of the vibration, resonance, and acoustics on this planet, you know, which wasn't a particular um, cultural agreement. And anyway, um, the, in the, the Western scale was, um, was tempered in the 17th century with the popularity of pianos. Mm-hmm. So when keyboards became you know, household items, there was a real problem about changing key or being in tune because the way that we used to tune from one note to five notes above it and five notes above that and five notes above that led to uh, an overlap called the Pythagorean comma, a quarter of a semitone, and, you know, so it didn't meet. And so there was this huge problem in the 17th century of how to retune our scale in the West, and the end result was called the well-tempered, the the tempered scale, which Bach celebrated with the well-tempered um, um, preludes and fugues for the you know Preludes and fugues for the well tempered clavier the keyboard, and so all music since Bach has been out of tune, and so i wanted I, um but most the idea was that nobody would notice and most people don't you know so we, we live with it but the, but it seems to me a real a real pathology, a real sign of us our whole society being out of tune mm. so um i wanted I wanted to have some kind of way of tuning the group. Um, together, which was beyond that, which wasn't out of tune. That whole point was to to be re-in, to be in tune. You know, that was that was my whole reason for doing this was so that we we firstly we could create a sonorous community, but one that was in tune, internally coherent, in tune mutually with each other, and in tune with nature, the geometry of nature. And so, this is why I adopted this form of chanting. Uh, which I had encountered through Stimmung and through the Tibetan lamas, this form of chanting where you chant on a single note and uh, you create the other notes at the same time by sequentially amplifying the resonant cavities in a different way so that the internal sounds uh, become audible as distinct pitches. So every note contains all these other sounds we don't normally hear. So it's like the rainbow. We know that white light contains the colors of the rainbow, but we only see it when it goes through a prism, uh, you know, through a raindrop or through a crystal dangling in our window. And then we see the rainbow colors, but we don't normally see them. And it's the same with sound. Every sound has all these rainbow sounds inside it, but we never hear them unless we filter. And it's not a prism in the case of hearing, it's a filter unless we filter them in such a way that we can then hear them but they're there so uh, what I I felt the need to find a way that was to do with the very fundamental nature of resonance and acoustics uh, on this part of the universe and so the harmonics were the way and so I used this as a means um, to uh, bring order into the into the system and allow people to sing um, in a way that was in tune, and and you can't be out of tune on a single note anyway. So this meant that you know you have, it's all about re, it's all relative. So you can only sing out of tune if you are singing two notes, and so with the harmonics you're just singing one note, and the rest comes about through resonance. So um, and and at the time musicians hadn't heard of it either. Most almost all musicians. So it was a real leveler between people who'd been told they couldn't sing and right up to the scale of professional dealers, you know, and I've had everybody in between. And and this was a real leveler because neither could do this form of chanting, and yet it was completely fundamental to the nature of sound itself.
0: Mm. So this is what is sometimes called overtone singing or harmonic singing or even uh, throat singing in some traditions. Uh, <clears throat> chanting, but yes, exactly. Overtone chanting. Um, in my kind of introduction to that, was through the Mongolians, through the Tuvan throat singers, who have uh, many different techniques for producing harmonic overtones in the voice. Is there a particular technique that you teach people that's easily accessible? Because some of these take quite a long time to develop and um, be quite difficult to pick up.
1: Yes, I mean, the, the Mongolians, I, I hear you talk about Mongo, uh, uh Harmonic overturns. It's interesting. I put out a recording very early on, and in, in the days of calling and, and the interviewer called them harmonic overturns, which is really another two words for the same thing. And I've, it's taken off. <laughs> it's either one or the other. It's interesting how it's how it's kind of gone viral. Um, yes, there are many different methods, as you say, and the, and the, the Mongolians and Tubans have six or five or six, and the Tibetans have sort of one. And so what I do is um, is is kind of one, where you 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 produce the the fundamental in a kind of forced sort of way, and and then just by changing the vocal cavities, you I, mean, I can demonstrate it, you amplify the harmonics. So it's probably the simplest way. Um, and the other thing about it is not culturally appropriating any particular form of music, which is, of course, something that one doesn't want to do these days. Um, so I don't want to sound like a Mongolian or a Tuvan or a Tibetan, but I want to be able to uh, introduce people to this form of chanting so it isn't really exactly any of them
0: mm-hmm. and so are you using the technique of uh, curling the tongue up to create yeah. a smaller cavity in the mouth
1: Well, changing the cavity yeah mm-hmm.
0: changing the cavity yeah so there's actually kind of um two chambers right yeah. Yeah. Would you mind demonstrating that just so people get a little taste of that? And I'll probably include uh, a recording as well as part of this podcast. But if you want to try it live, see if your microphone picks it up. I know sometimes the overtones can really mess with these computer microphones. (laughs) I can try. That really came through. And actually, I think your microphone really highlighted the harmonics. Uh, you could that's really hear the...
1: Start the microphone, it's me. <laughs> yeah,
0: I know. But um, you could hear the the low end kind of drop out and just hear that ascending and descending scale. So it's really, I think, clear for people and for people who can't see you, obviously. What it looks like is happening is there's a, a constriction at the throat. And also, uh, your mouth is changing shape, going from a oo kind of shape to an a wide a shape.
1: It doesn't need to do that, actually. Um, I mean, you can either do it by exaggerating the vowels, in which case you can use the mouth position a little bit, but you need to create an inner large chamber. But wh- wh- when you move the tongue, you don't really need to move the mouth. I was maybe doing it because I wasn't sure whether the acoustics of the room I'm in would actually enable you to hear them. But, but actually, you don't need to change the mouth at all.
0: Mm. and do you find
1: Uh, externally that is yeah
0: yeah do you find people are able to pick this up in a matter of a, a day or two of workshop with you
1: it varies actually um i mean i have to say that people who are used to hearing and doing hearing and doing get it faster but that doesn't always mean musicians you know um but funnily enough, 11-year-old boys are the ones, the only ones that I've, I've had, several 11-year-old boys who got it very quickly. But otherwise, it takes a little time because you do have to practice. Mm. So usually it takes a little time, but um, uh, usually after a few days, people get it. But it, it totally depends how much they practice. It's like learning a violin or something. You know, if you just know how to do it, it's no good. You have to practice to make bearable sounds.
0: Yeah, and that's one of the things about practicing uh, any kind of overtone singing, whether it's the low guttural throat singing of the tuvens or this kind, which sounds when you've got it, it sounds quite beautiful and kind of bird-like, but when you're practicing it can sound really strange. so you have to be comfortable with the people you live with uh, to be making like weird sounds in the shower, which is a great place to practice or you know the in your...
1: Actually, the car is a good place because often you're alone.
0: Exactly. I do it a lot in the car, actually. And and, you know, funnily enough, I started practicing uh, just intuitively when I was um, 15 or 16. I worked at a truck stop. And I would fill uh, propane tanks for people. And there was this massive propane tank. And when you turned it on, it would make this incredible drone. And it was totally loud. So you couldn't hear someone speaking over it. And that was... I just started to intuitively harmonize with this sound and to find all of the different overtones in this super rich buzzing drone. Um, and then, of course, when I discovered that this was actually a, a thing, like a tradition later, it kind of blew my mind and gave me an idea of maybe how it all started. Uh, you know, maybe um, people were just sitting meditating next to the river and started to just chant along with the river and to find, oh, there's actually all of these different um, tones within that one drone.
1: Well, the rivers usually have white noise. (coughs) In fact, the the way the Tibetans uh, teach each other is through, when I first um, asked my Tibetan Lama about this years and years ago, um, he said, "Who doesn't do it? I, I, he—he's dead now, but he—he—he he, he didn't do it. There's only certain tantric colleges within the reformed school, the Galupas, interestingly, of Tibetan Buddhism who who do this. And but anyway, I asked him, who was a Zogchenpa. I said, you know, how, how do they, you know how do they do it? And and he said, um, oh, they do it by waterfalls. And then later, when I was in the Himalayas working with the chant master of the Yuta monks." After a while, the chant master said to the young lama, "Now you take it to the waterfall." And so we went to the waterfall, and then I understood completely. Because before that, I thought it was a kind of Zen koan or a Zongchen koan or a Tibetan. Koan. Take it to the
0: waterfall. <laughs> <laughs> I thought,
1: you know, when I understand this, I'll be enlightened. <laughs> anyway, I, I guess I wasn't anyway. No so anyway, he took me to the waterfall, and then I got it completely because the waterfall is a white noise. And when you get the harmonic, you know, there are these high-pitched notes which are put into relief by the white noise of the, of the waterfall. So, so it's an amazing, the pragmatic sort of technique for learning without knowing anything about acoustics.
0: Yeah, yeah. So the way you're describing it, it sounds like the white noise becomes a background that the overtone can stand out upon.
1: Exactly, yes. But actually, you can also do it with your vacuum cleaner or
0: your hairdryer. Anything, totally, yeah. (laughs) And once you get into it, you'll find, you know, that's what I find, is anything that's creating a drone, I automatically start singing along with it. (laughs) Which, which, (laughs) you know, goes back to why I think, you know, you said 11-year-old boys pick this up really quickly. And I know for me, my whole life, I've just been into making weird sounds. Yeah. And which kind of, you know, I still do. I'm 45 now, but and, and it kind of <laughs> drives my wife crazy sometimes because I'll be doing the dishes, but I'll be singing along with the faucet. and like <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, mean, I don't know why boys do this more than girls, but they do.
0: <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it's just like an intuitive way to self-regulate all of our kind of rambunctious energy or something. I don't know.
1: Maybe, maybe. Just yeah. like that
0: intuitive sense of how to uh, heal ourselves and bring ourselves into that coherent state that you talked about. I don't know.
1: Yeah, I, I wonder. But it is interesting. But everybody can do it. That's, you know, some people say, oh, but I've got a very small mouth or I've got a big tongue or I've got false teeth or I've got this or the other. Or, you know, can I still do it? And I say, yeah, anybody can do it.
0: <laughs> yeah, and that's one of the things that I really love about sharing uh, chanting with people is that you know chanting was actually chanting sanskrit was my way back into using my voice because i'd shut down my voice for many years like you were talking about you know i went for an audition for a school play pirates of penzance back in you know eighth or ninth grade and i was trying out for the chorus and i was told that uh my my pitch wasn't good enough, and so I couldn't be part of the chorus. So they put me on the timpanies. <laughs> oh no! Terrible. And ever since then, I always had this idea that, you know, I couldn't sing. Like I was a guitar player my whole life. I had really great ears. So I had a great sense of inner pitch, which actually frustrated me when I couldn't match that with my voice. Um, So I didn't sing for a long time, or I would only sing by myself if nobody could hear. I would indulge in singing. Um, And when I started to practice Sanskrit chanting as part of my yoga practice, uh, it was... It was like a doorway in because in Vedic chanting we're usually only dealing with three notes, and you know I I always use the drone so there's something for me to resonate with. It gave me that foundation, that reference point, and I really loved it. Like it really started to open me up in different ways. And then after a few years of that, I had the opportunity to spend a week at Hollyhock in British Columbia with Sylvia Nakash. That's
1: where I go. That's where I teach every year.
0: Yeah, that's why I was thinking about it. Um, and I spent a week with her, and her whole thing was on freeing your voice. And she yeah. uses uh, some kind of harmonic stuff, but really her way in is teaching people simple ragas, yeah. Yeah. simple yeah. scales and learning how to improvise using the scale. Yeah. Um, so all of this started to formulate for you back in the 70s and 80s. I'm wondering... You've been teaching workshops for many decades. How has has your has your teaching uh, developed over the years? Has it changed? Are you still discovering new things?
1: Oh yes. Well, I do. I do. I do several kinds of teachings now. So the voice is one, uh, as we we've talked about. But then I do family constellations. So for the last sort of over twenty years now, I've been working with um, inherited traumas. Um, so if if in an early Earlier generation of somebody's family, somebody has there's been an interruption, so and uh, you know, an interruption in what might be perceived as the flowering of a life so um, early deaths, suicides, illness, uh, mental illness, incarceration, it, injustices, um, abortions, um, um, uh, adoptions, either way, uh, miscarriages, uh, emigrations. Anything which interrupts what might be conceived as this notional full life, flowering life, um, causes a a stable pattern of trauma to exist in the field of the family and ancestors, which gets passed down through the generations and um, seems to occupy somebody in every generation who has some kind of resonance with this earlier person, even if they didn't know this person existed, even if they had no idea what happened to them. And so, somebody in every generation feels that they are, in some way, um, you know, in embodying something which really isn't theirs. You know, some difficulty or some. Um, and so, this is extraordinary. So the work is, and I use between each person, I use sound and sort of trance dance and 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 so forth. And so, it's a way of using, you know, the the you so people to select other people in the group to to represent these family members. And then in some completely mysterious way, they feel like them, speak like them, act like them. Um, And uh, you see the family through time and you see the family through the eyes of multiple members of the same family, which is something that uh, normally we never can. So normally we just see this little window of uh, emotional response to was I loved enough, was I loved more or less than my siblings, was I good enough? And that's about it. Whereas this is a, a whole, you know, you see this sort of multiples perspective as a family through space and time. And where you can resolve all these unresolved issues in in a very short time. And so the the effect is completely astonishing. And other people who aren't present sort of ring up and say, What were you doing? Something was you know, I was changing and, you know, Um, One person was staying with her mother and doing the weekend with me and uh, she came back on the second day. She said, you're not going to believe this, but my mother's been estranged from her five brothers and sisters for 26 years. They all telephoned yesterday while we were working so it's a bit, it's about bringing in the outliers and the rejected ones and and all the other members who've been forgotten you know we say we will remember you well it's about remembering that which has been forgotten and bringing the whole system back together again so that there's a kind of induction of order and everybody feels everybody gets to be in their rightful place and so the ancestors can look kindly on the living and it changes everything dramatically
0: mm. and and from the first person personal perspective when someone is playing the role of your not i wouldn't even say playing the role because it's almost like in these instances people are channeling channeling yeah. the the ancestor
1: playing the role is it's very misleading because it implies yeah. that if you act the work stops and channeling i i know it's almost like channeling but i i I I don't like the word channeling because so often it applies to you poor little worms down there, you know, you need to do this or that, or you know, I, I, so some greater being is seeing and instructing you. It's all about advice. And this work is not about advice because advice is deadly. So, but as you say, it's almost like that. I mean, you, but, but at the same time, occasionally I've had people who do channel. Um, do the work. And it's not good, you know, they they start to be too uh, assertive, or, you know, the the whole thing moves into a different kind of level. So it's not channeling, but it's not acting either. And I think the best word is representing. And But it is, I see it like consulting the oracle. You know, mm-hmm. it, because you can't control what comes up. If somebody comes with an idea, I'm going to work on this, I feel my mother's line, blah, blah, blah. You know, the work can go in another direction. And you, and you have to really flow with what's being revealed by the oracle in the moment. And as a guide to this, I have to flow with it too. I can't think, well, th- this, then that, or if this, then that. I have to flow with what's being revealed in the moment as well.
0: Yeah. And if it wasn't such a loaded term in our culture, we would call it possession.
1: Uh, interesting. I mean, we don't know what that means. I mean, all these terms like hypnosis, meditation, possession, trance, these are all words. We have no idea what any of them mean, really.
0: <laughs> yeah, just from, you know, that the idea that uh, a, an entity is possessing the body for a period of time. Yeah, I know. In, in order to communicate something or to enact something, yeah. Um,
1: yeah, no, I agree. It's 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 very very remarkable, and um, but I, but the, but possession has such a negative connotation. Um,
0: I I, d- the- I just think we need to re- rehabilitate some of these words in our culture, you know, like because we lose these like these become taboo words, so we we stop practicing the things, and these are things that all of our ancestors practiced.
1: Absolutely, yeah right. yeah, yeah, and I mean but I mean, especially because the, I mean the work is so benign, you know, and so to, to to these words which have become loaded in a negative sense,
0: you know right it's not scary or spooky or dangerous yeah. or anything
1: No, it's magic, it's wonderful
0: it's only dangerous if you really need to hold on to some perception of your grandfather or your grandmother, you know, yeah, yeah. um so, I can understand how. So where I guess I was going with that is when someone is representing uh, one of your family members, it can help you shift from a kind of self-involved perspective of being a victim and maybe understand something of their experience and through that find some compassion and forgiveness. So I can understand how that's working on the person in doing the consolation work. But you described that kind of simultaneously there seemed to be this healing happening in the family members who are outside of the consolation work, but somehow they were picking up on this healing. Now, what's your understanding of that?
1: Well, I have absolutely none. I mean, I don't know how it works. It's it's utterly, utterly baffling. I don't know... um, I mean, one time my son, when he was representing, um, I, I, I you know, I don't work with my family because they're my family, but they've represented. And one time I had these two brothers who worked with me a lot, especially one of them. And one of the brothers was more vulnerable than the other brother. And, and the, the less vulnerable brother chose my son, this is the first time he did it, Cosmo, to represent his brother, who was also present. And so I could see Cosmo kind of... Um, Who'd never done this before standing there and suddenly he kind of slumped and then I could see because you know I know him very well I could see the sort of workings of his intellectual saying this is ridiculous I'm Cosmo and he kind of became erect again and then and then he sort of slumped again and then he and then no, no this is Cosmo it can't be happening you know and then he went between these two states for several you know minutes and finally he realized what was happening and he let go and he slumped and went on with it from there. And it's completely mysterious. I mean, I don't know what's going on and so, we I mean, the reason I use sound, for example, and, and I do it ceremonially, unlike other people who do what are called family constellations, um, because I came to it quite independently, um, is because it amplifies the family and ancestral field, whatever that is. We don't know what fields are. We don't, we don't know what gravitational field is, except that it affects things. So we only know the effects of fields. We don't really know what they are. So, Um, we don't know what's going on. I mean, it's very, very mysterious that in some... And it's just for the time we're working. You know, if I work for somebody with somebody for 40 minutes and somebody's representing their mother, when the work stops, they stop being their mother. You know, they go back to being themselves. And um, it affects everybody within the field of the family and ancestors, wherever they are, throughout space and time. I mean, I've had many examples of that. You know, I had another person work with me a lot. He came this time with his sister and her husband and her husband's mother and um when the when the brother was working the work was very much about his sister who was the vulnerable one in the family and they came back on the second day and they said the same thing you know you're not going to believe this but and um they'd had a phone call from the sister who was having dinner with a friend and at exactly the time we were working the friend was saying to the sister but you're changing you're looking what's happening you're you're, you're transforming before my eyes i mean go figure
0: hmm so when you're um, setting up these constellations, do you do anything to help people get into a, a trance state or a more receptive state to help facilitate that uh, representing work?
1: Yes. I mean, between each person we chant and we do a kind of a rotational trance dance. So not for very long, but just long enough to to get people into us, kind of to dissolve the boundaries between the worlds, if you like, to to make them more... To, well, I, I think of it as amplifying the family and ancestral field, so to dissolve the boundaries between people. So, I, yeah, for me, I, I th- well, the other thing is, that for me, it's very important to do this work in a, you know, I work ceremonially because I think it's important to embed what we do in a much higher reality, you know, we're in, in a kind of divine reality. I think that's very important. And also I work ceremonially because I think if you if you go somewhere to do something, to learn something, you do a workshop of some kind, you have a sense that you could be a better person. Otherwise, why would you have gone to do something? You you feel that you're going to reject the past, the, the you that was, and you're going to accept the you that's become through doing whatever it is you're doing. And um if you then just go back to your community they don't know you've changed and so they just reflect reflect like a jigsaw puzzle piece the you that was and then you remain the same but if the context in which you're working the human context knows that you've changed then they reflect back this new you and can support the new because the new is difficult to sustain and so i think it's very important to work ceremonially and i and and that's a very important part of my work um so that so that the witness can support the new you and knows and you know that they know that you know that there's no going back. um so I think it's very important. so I, yeah, I do this work within the context of sound and and so forth. very
0: important. Do you give people because that is some, that is an issue is that we can go away on retreat and workshop, and we can experience a profound transformation. Then we go back into our nuclear family where people have the same uh, vision of us, they have the same ideas about us, they're they're kind of locked into it because they didn't go through the transformative workshop. And those patterns can be so strong as we end up just falling back into those old patterns. Now, if we're not doing this work inside of our community that includes our, our family, do you give people advice on how to... Uh, allow people to witness this transformed self or is it a matter of sitting down and talking with the people in your life and explaining to them where you're at now or
1: well it's very interesting if one of my students you know because i often talk about weddings you know because and traditionally people got married in the bosom of their community you know with their family their 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 village or tribe or their larger community or their community through time or you know so everybody that they the whole societal context would be there at the wedding knowing that you were going from being an unmarried person uh to be well if you're english if you're you're north american it may be or multiple time but you know in england we tend to marry less and um and to being married and um and so they're there. And then you have somebody who actually you go behind the scenes and you actually sign a document saying, I was there. I witnessed this person getting married. You know, and you sign it, witnessed, you know. and um, but, but nowadays it's fashion for, for destination weddings. You go to Mexico, you get married underwater, and you, your friends can't afford to come. So you can, uh, anyway, you you know you don't invite them necessarily. So that's the 13th fairy, and that's not good either. You come back and then you say, hi, guys, we're married. And they say, oh, really? Oh, uh, are you? Oh, so what? And so this friend, the student of mine found this very, very interesting paper, a correlative paper about uh, what, gave, what, what gives for a longevity in marriage. And so they examined all the sort of parameters, you know, sort of wh- whether the parents knew each other, how long, how long have the people known each other, you know, how much did they spend on the wedding, you know, how long was the honeymoon, how big was the cake, you know, the whole, every, every kind of, you know, how much was spent on the dress, you know, the, the whole thing. And they looked at the, for the correlations, you know, between how long these people have been married and the ingredients of these parameters. And the one, the only thing that made any difference, so if, the more money you spent on the wedding, the, the shorter the, the marriage. But the only thing where there was a correlation of any, of any interest was the more people you invited to the wedding, the longer the marriage. In other words, the more people who witnessed you, going from being an unmarried person to being a married person. In other words, the more people who then could sustain you in the new state of you. So for me this is very, very important and, and, and this is why I like to work ceremonially. So at least the community who's there working knows that you're no longer what you were. And then it makes it much easier when you go back into... I once had a uh, an abbess of a monastery, of a nunnery, ring me up many, many years ago and said that she had a nun, it was a Benedictine monastery. And the Benedictines sing a lot, you know, they sing every five hours, they do this um, chanting every five hours, they're called the hours, although it's kind of gradually being whittled away. And uh, Anyway, she said that um, this nun, the, the sisters, were horrible to her because she couldn't sing. And so um, would, she'd heard about my work and, and, and um, could she come and work with me? So, of course, she could. And... Um, so she said, "What would she wear?" So, so in, in England, um, this is very sort of Monty Python-esque. In England, m- nuns wear these medieval habits. You know, these sort of big black dresses with big, you know, big things. And,
0: the the and, penguin uh, suit, right? The, the penguin, penguin suit. suit.
1: Exactly. So she told me hilariously, "Monty, Monty Python nights." She went into the. She came by train. She went into the, 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 the lavatory on the train, uh, dressed as uh, in this kind of medieval outfit, and came out with a wig and a tracksuit. <laughs> Anyway, (laughs) it turned out she had a lovely voice and she sang beautifully. And in fact, when she'd gone for her, um, when she was a novitiate, they she'd gone before this in order to become a fully fledged nun. She'd had to go before a panel, and they said, "No, no, no, you can't possibly because you can't sing." But her 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 vocation was so strong that she managed to persuade them, and so she'd been twenty years a nun by then. Anyway, she had a lovely voice and, and so after the workshop, she went back to the community and about a week later, the abbess rang me again. She said, well, I know um, that she said that, you know, all your, you know that, you, that she could sing and everything, but the sisters know she can't. Hmm. And so they say, you know, why when you open your mouth does no sound come out, and so on. So this is a very good example. I mean, you you know, the, the the bigger the community that that is with you and and is witnessing you going through these changes, the easier it is for you to sustain this new you, because otherwise you just slot back into the old you. So mm. that's that's why I like to do things in this way, ceremonially, so that the work is witnessed very consciously by others who are present.
0: And I think that speaks to the importance of uh, sangha or. Uh, Staying connected to people who you may even have met when you traveled to do a workshop, but staying connected in some way to help support this change in you because you may not get that same support from your family or coworkers who just refuse to see that you've changed in some fundamental way.
1: That's that, absolutely. And, and I have a really big community of people who do a lot of work with me and they, they, you know, they come, they do many of the family workshops, they do many of the mandalas, which I haven't talked about, but I, twice a year I do this week long um, where I do this very extended five-day ceremony. So some of them have done them all for the last sort of 23 years or something. and And, um, and a lot of them have done the family work. So they've all been each other's mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and, you know, and um, there's a real community and, and it's a very, very wonderful community. And um, just last October, somebody who'd been helping me a lot, 53-year-old, had a stroke, you know, and so and, and ha, ha, all her family had died and wasn't talking to her sister. And so we, we did a kind of GoFundMe. We have a Facebook page for the community who worked with me and raised money for her and, and supported her through this whole kind of recuperation from the stroke. Um, so the community is a very, very important part of our lives, which has been eroded by the way that we live, feeling that we're isolated individuals. And and to have a sonorous community and a community who does this kind of work, it's really profound.
0: Mm, beautiful. Have people uh, who've been to workshops with you started chanting circles in their own communities?
1: I think this does happen, yes. I, I mean, there's no question. And people, you know... I mean, uh, uh, you know, Sylvia Nakash runs this this thing at CIIS. You know, this um, at which I started. You know, I, I from mm. 1984 for 12 years running. I started the whole um, you know work, healing voice work, sound work, voice work at, at CIIS um, long before um, in this actual. Uh, class was started so mm. um so i you know i pioneered this work all over the world really and a lot of people have taken it up and are carrying it on and and uh, yeah
0: amazing um i guess i just uh have one more question and that's about your personal practice do you have a daily practice and if so can you give us an idea of what that looks like for you
1: well that's interesting because i was i was um, I was you know from a child I was baptized as a as a Christian and then I when I was 12 in England you know in the Anglican church you get confirmed at the age of 12 and I rejected it because I didn't believe <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> my husband did as well. And then, when I was eighteen, before I left, I was at a girls' boarding school, which happens in England. And I decided that I wanted to get confirmed because it would be easier to do it then, and I would want it later. I had this knowledge that you know, this awareness that I would want it later, even though I didn't want it now. So, so quite sort of calculatingly, I got confirmed then. And so, um, so I sort of you know that so practicing Christian Anglican was part of my life. But then, um, I I found it very unsatisfactory in many ways as a spiritual practice and so very early on i encountered alternative ways you know sufism and then for the last 45 years tibetan buddhism um and so for a long time um i i, I suppose i i'm sort of both a christian and a practicing buddhist although i never call myself a buddhist even though i'm practicing and have done for years uh because i i'm i'm very averse to labels of any kind um so I, um So I have a foot in both worlds, really, Um, but in terms of actual practice, my practice is definitely based in Tibetan Buddhism, Um, um, because that seems to be much more based on sort of an understanding of the nature of the mind, whereas the Anglican practice is, is has a kind of literalism about it, which I don't understand really. Um, whereas Tibetan Buddhist practice is really based on if you do this, then this happens. If you do that, then I haven't, you know, it's, a, it's a, it has this extraordinary understanding of the nature of the mind, which has gone on for centuries in, in the Buddhist, in the Tibetan Buddhist community. In the beginning, when I met Tibetan Buddhism, it seemed very peculiar and Baroque and strange. And I, I sort of rejected it until I found the teacher I worked with for years where he had an understanding of the Western mind and had sort of peeled away some of the cultural accoutrements in a way that made it very profound. So, so my practice is, is, is based really in, in that, and it is a kind of chanting practice. That's a mm-hmm. sort of long answer to your,
0: <laughs> to your question. No, that's, that's great. And it's actually it's something I've been um, thinking about more and more recently, I was also baptized Anglican. And, uh, you know, I went to Sunday school when I was a kid. And I I ended up going to a Catholic high school just because they had a great music program. But, uh, and we also did a production of Jesus Christ Superstar, which was really amazing. Um, But interestingly enough, my explorations of yoga and plant medicines like ayahuasca have kind of reawakened this christianity that seems to be in my dna like when i'm in a state of samadhi uh, after my yoga practice or chanting when i'm connected to my heart i have this feeling of that kind of christ consciousness and i you know i've had this image come to mind of the sacred heart of christ you know him opening up his robes and pointing at his heart as if to say the answer is here um, and, and I find that just an interesting thing to hold. Like you, I also uh, have a real problem with labels and putting these limitations on myself, but it's just been an interesting exploration of me of having this practice, which, is, which comes from a, you know predominantly Hindu culture, but having it somehow open me to the, the religious culture of, of my own ancestry. Um, and then reading the memoir of my great grandfather, who they were Mennonites, reading his uh, short memoir that he was able to write before he died, and him talking about playing music with others and having this experience of the heart. And somehow yoga has led me back to this aspect of spirituality and mysticism that is part of my ancestry, which is, you know, Christian. I just find that very interesting, and it's just kind of something that I'm just holding in my awareness these days and I'm trying not to come to any conclusions or defining anything or saying, well, maybe I should create a Christian yoga or something like that. But it's just something that's kind of been in my my sphere these days. So it's interesting to hear you talk about that.
1: Well, interestingly enough, in my I, I mentioned that I do these two week-longs with this very extended ceremony where I've kind of understood the nature of the Tibetan mandala. And um, so I work over a week with a human mandala. We go through ourselves as understanding the nature of consciousness, continuously chanting. And um, in the one I do, I do them over the two of the cross quarter days. So Beltane, May Day, and um, uh, sowan Festival of the Dead, All Souls Day. And um, as part of the one in sowan and the Festival of All Souls Day, um, my local church um, for years and years and years and years, I've had a requiem mass as part of it so, um, in the church. Um, so that we actually, uh, the, the the vicar actually chants the names of our ancestors. So we give him screeds and screams of names, and he chants the names of our ancestors while we light candles. And Rupert, my husband, plays the organ, a little beautiful Russian Kentuckian for the dead. And so it's really interesting how that uh, requiem has become very much part you know, I do it one evening of the week. And, and people, it, a lot of people who have who've become disaffected, who might have been Christian and, you know, or some kind of Western tradition, suddenly see that in the context of a much wider understanding of ceremony and, 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 and um, you know, can often sort of reclaim their roots in a very interesting way.
0: Mm, It sounds like you're bringing paganry back to the church or something. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> <laughs> but it's interesting because I've gone through several vicars. I've been doing it so long, you know, and they they they, <laughs> they they last so many years. And some of them will pray for the dead, and some won't, you know, because that was a big thing in the church, you know, whether you could pray for the dead, and and it you know, became abused and and indulgences and all that. So some of them say you have to pray for the living, but you can't pray for the dead. Well, you know, for me it's important you pray for the dead. Anyway, mm-hmm. the current one does pray for the dead. <laughs> which is good.
0: Wonderful. You know, I really wish that I could come out to your workshops next month. Now, can you talk a little bit about what you're doing in North America?
1: Sure. Um, well, I'm 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 attending. I'm presenting at a conference in Santa Clara in California called the Institute of Noetic Sciences' biannual conference, um, which is in Santa Clara. So, I'll be doing a day demonstration of the family work, and then I'll be doing a session of the chanting. And then on the 26th, of July 26th, I'll be doing a five-day um, workshop of the Family Constellations in, um, uh, in British Columbia uh, uh, on Cortez Island, Hollyhock. You mentioned uh, a center on Cortez Island, which is an island off an island off Vancouver Island.
0: It's so incredibly beautiful. People, yeah. if you have any opportunity to go, go.
1: Absolutely. So I'll be doing that in July 26. And then and then the and Festival of the Day on the 26th of October, I'll be doing a week intensive here um, in England. But um, in October, I'll be in Massachusetts. Um, I'm, um, I'm at Rogue Ro Camp on the 4th to the 11th of uh, October. I'm doing a week. So a weekend of sound work, of voice work, followed by five days of family constellations. And these are all on my, work, on my website, healingvoice.com you So all these workshops are there. Um, you know, uh, so I don't often go to the East coast of North America, but I will be there on this occasion for a week.
0: Well, it's not far from where I'm living now. So maybe that's where I'm going to have to meet up with you because, um, there's just so many overlaps and, you know, it's been such a blessing for me to meet elders, uh, who, are exploring these things that really resonate with me. Um, So it seems like I'll have to make that happen somehow.
1: (laughs) Definitely, yes. Montreal's not very far. It's in the Berkshires, so you can definitely come.
0: Yeah, beautiful. Well, thanks so much for spending all this time with me and sharing so much of your wisdom and perspective. I really enjoyed it.
1: Yes, me too. Thank you.
0: If you enjoyed this conversation, please consider leaving a review on iTunes or sharing it on social media. If you're looking for support on your medicine path, you can become a Patreon subscriber and gain access to hours of yoga practice resources, podcast extras, and a lot more. You can find out more about that at patreon.com forward slash And if you'd like more personal support, you can book an online session with me at medicinepathhealingarts.com. Thanks so much for listening. May the road rise up to meet you. May the wind be always at your back. May the sun shine warm upon your face. Until next time we meet on the medicine path.